Hello, everyone. Really pleased to introduce uh, Caroline Larrington speaking on The Walking Dead in British Folklore. A uh, big round of applause, please. Now we have The Walking Dead actually up on our screens there. And these three that you can see there, in fact, uh, a motif called The Three Living and The Three Dead. And this is from a story where a king or a, a, a lord or an emperor or a bishop very often are riding along and they meet a couple of skeletons who remind them of the fact that they're going to die. So these look very jolly indeed, these uh, grinning skeletons from a, a manuscript in the British Library. Um, but the kinds of walking dead that I'm going to be talking about here are much nastier than those cheery-looking chaps we just saw on that last slide there. And the first example I'm going to talk about is in a very interesting case, quite a well-known one, from the years just after the Norman Conquest, recorded in um, about 1180 or so, um, but probably occurring about 100 years before. And this is the village of Stapenhill in uh, Staffordshire. It looks a peaceful and friendly place, but if you knew the horrors that lurked beneath, you would be terrified. Now, very close to Stapenhill is a now deserted village called Drakelow. And in fact, Drakelow means dragon's mound. So there was already perhaps something slightly eerie about this place. And in the years shortly after the conquest, two peasants ran away from their feudal lord in Stapenhill, which was mostly owned by the Abbey of Burton-on-Trent. And it's the abbot of that abbey at Burton who actually records this story some 70 or 80 years later. And he has good reasons for this. So the peasants run away to Drakelow, and we think perhaps this was because they wanted to get a better deal, basically, as peasants, to negotiate a better kind of um, rights from their feudal lord than whatever they were getting from the abbey, which probably wasn't a particularly um, good situation to find themselves in. And so off they go to Drakelow at that point, the territory of a certain Lord Roger, and there they died. But they didn't stay down for long. They were to be found wandering through the streets of the village, carrying their coffins on their backs, hammering on the doors. And when they banged on your front door, very soon afterwards you fell ill and many people died. Well, it was clear where the problem lay because the hammerers were these two identifiable individuals. And so some brave men of the village dug up the graves and found the bodies in the coffins undecayed and with cloths stained with fresh bloods lying across their faces. Well, there are a couple of things you can do under those sorts of circumstances, and they did all the right things. They chopped off the revenants' heads and shoved them between their legs. This always confuses them. Um, <laughs> because they can't see where they're going. This is a very tried and tested way of dealing with this kind of thing. But just to be on the safe side, they cut out their hearts, threw them onto a fire, and two black crows were seen flying up from the fire and flying away. And after that, I'm happy to say that the haunting ceased. The problem was solved. 
And so in this story, um, which has been discussed by quite a few historians recently, it seems to be very much the case that the social unrest following on the Norman conquest, the change of lordship from the lands of the abbey to a new Norman lord who'd come and taken over what had been Anglo-Saxon property before, had caused a certain amount of social confusion, social um, dislocation, which manifested itself with this particular story. And I don't know how well you can see this flowchart here, um, but Charles West from the University of Sheffield, who has written um, extensively about this particular story, has um, produced this very helpful flowchart. So if um, you can find it on a website called turbulentpriest.com, but you can also find it history. History Today, in fact, has an animated version, so you can play a quiz um, to help you hone your, your responses to local vampire hauntings. I have played this quiz, and I'm afraid I've been killed about five times. Um, and that's even with some specialist knowledge, so play it if you dare. But um, although the, the undead men were disposed of on that occasion, Drake Lowe was still abandoned. Um, that probably has to do with entirely social and historical factors but you have to wonder. Now, Draco still has some weird stuff going on there. Um, there are some tunnels um, built deep into the, the chalk cliffs there, and these were actually excavated in World War II and were a kind of um, under, underground military installation. But still, there are spooky nights. You can spend the whole night in the cave waiting for apparitions to make themselves known. And there's also the Walking Dead apocalypse, which sounds not entirely like my idea of fun, where you can go through the tunnels and zombies will leap out and try to kill you. Now, I don't know whether this is a kind of deliberate harking back to this medieval tradition, or whether they just thought tunnels, zombies, this is a good way to pass the time. Who knows? Well. After the account of Abbot Geoffrey about what was going on in Stapenhill, we find um, William of Newborough, one of the historians of the, the late 12th century, in his Historia Rerum Anglicarum, the history of English things. He tells us about some interesting cases. And um, what has always puzzled me, in a sense, is his observation when he talks about four cases in some detail were I to write down all the instances of this kind which I have ascertained to have befallen in our times, the undertaking would be beyond measure laborious and troublesome. This is happening all the time. These creatures will not stay in their graves. And William talks about four cases in some detail. And the first one um, has a very definite date, the 29th of May, 1196, because this was the, the day of the man's funeral. And on the night of his funeral, he returned to his marital bed and leapt on top of his wife and almost crushed her to death. Um, she found that very disturbing, and he kept coming back, kept leaping on top of his wife. And in the end, instead of cutting his head off, they realised that, as many of these walking dead are, are troubled by the same kinds of problems, he had an unconfessed sin on his conscience. We don't know quite what it was, 
but the bishop wrote a scroll of absolution. And once that was popped in the coffin, no more problems. So that's one way of handling them. Now, the, the ghost of Berwick, this is Berwick on Tweed, is a different matter. He would walk the streets pursued by a pack of loudly barking dogs behind him. And William's account doesn't make it all that clear whether these are real dogs of Berwick, but I assume actually they're black dogs with eyes like saucers. That seems very, very likely to me. And there's quite a lot of this dog activity goes on with the, the walking dead. Um, he causes pestilence wherever he goes, and eventually ten brave young men of the town capture him, dismember him, and cremate him. Now, of course, cremation is not something that you would normally do with a dead body in medieval times. A burial is the, the um, recommended and indeed ritual form of disposing of the corpses. But if the corpse is not going to stay in its grave, cremation is called for. And then we have the hound's priest of Melrose. Now, he also has a pack of dogs, and this is explained by the fact that, um, like the monk in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, he's very fond of hunting. And in fact, priests who go hunting, particularly on Sundays, when obviously they should be doing other things, quite often come to unpleasant ends. Um, and so did this one. Not only did he go hunting, he also had a mistress, which is, of course, not proper priestly behaviour. And after he died, he was found lurking outside his mistress's bedchamber and groaning. <laughs> and she found that very disturbing. So they got a gang of local priests to hang around outside the chamber. Um, the ghost didn't turn up. So three of the priests left, and when there was only one left standing guard over the chamber, the hound's priest did turn up. There was a fight. Our hero punched a hole in the ghost, who then vanished. But when they dug up the grave, they found a, a new injury. There was a hole in the corpse. So you obviously, at that point, you exhume him and cremate him. So that was the end of him. And finally, there's the bloodsucker of Anantis. We don't really know where Anantis is, but we think it may be Anik, um, because these stories are recorded mostly in North Yorkshire, apart from this one in Buckinghamshire. Now, the, the, blood, the bloodsucker of Anik had fled from York under mysterious circumstances and had come to the castle of Anantis, wherever that might be. He'd married within the castle, one of the, the ladies there. Um, he suspects his wife of infidelity. Um, and now here's a warning, possibly, do not take this path should you suspect such a thing about your own um, beloved partners here. He climbs up into the beams over the marital bed to see if his wife is, in fact, entertaining a lover. Oh, dear, she is. Uh, and he falls down from the beams and breaks his neck and dies before confession. So this is an awkward situation all round. Um, no wonder he doesn't, he doesn't say in his grave. He brings pestilence as he walks again. And he seems to be sucking blood from humans because when they open up the grave, the body is swollen and suffused. So they take out his heart and cremate it, and that's the end of him. And so we can see here a repeated pattern that the walking dead are people who've got a great deal on their conscience. They're people who've got things to expiate from their lives. And very often it can be fixed either by this cremation ritual or by some form of absolution. 
So moving on to some more medieval material from Byland Abbey, and Mark mentioned um, a shape-changing ghost from the Byland Abbey stories. And there's quite a bunch of these here. There's a ghost called Robert, who is pursued by barking dogs, again, doubtless black um, saucer eyes and so on. He's captured, and he talks. He confesses his sins um, slightly too late. Obviously, he should have done that before he died. But nevertheless, this is enough to lay him to rest. And then there's the rather nasty... Um, James Tankerley, who was a rector who lived near Byland Abbey, he had, I'm afraid, a mistress, and he comes back from the dead, breaks into her chamber, and blows on her eye and blinds her. Uh, this is something fairies do, actually, quite often, when they want to blind a human for some reason. Um, blowing on the eyes is a very effective way of doing it. And um, then he helpfully gives instructions. If you want to stop me from doing more of this kind of thing, you need to dig up my coffin and take it and throw it in this lake, Gormire, quite close to Byland Abbey. So it's quite helpful, I think, for the ghost to explain how he can be laid. And it doesn't seem necessarily to have much to do with absol absolution in this case. So... Throwing the body in a lake is quite unusual because you would expect that the revenant would then poison or pollute the lake in some way. But in fact, in one Icelandic saga where we have a particularly nasty walking dead person, he's cremated and his ashes are placed in a lead casket and then the lead casket is thrown in a hot spring. So there's a lot of, at least a triple lock on that particular individual called Clovey and I can tell you he doesn't come back. Well... Now we have some, if you like, actual history as opposed to the legendary history of what may have happened or must have happened in the Middle Ages. In the deserted uh, North Yorkshire village or actually East Yorkshire village of Warren Percy, some recent archaeological excavations have turned up a lot of bones which have been rather strangely treated. Now Warren Percy is a deserted village and the last... Uh, mention of it in legal records, is 1517, when the last villagers were being evicted from there. So it looks as if it's the kind of place which began to lose population with the Black Death in the 14th century and never quite recovered. But its church was still active, I think, into the 1960s. And people from the University of Southampton have been doing some excavation in Warren Percy and found a lot of bones um, in what was the graveyard which have been strangely treated. They have 137 bones belonging to at least 10 different individuals, ranging from a child of age two to four to an older person of more than 50. And these bones have been broken, snapped, burned. Something has been done to them, which is not usual. And it doesn't appear to be a case of cannibalism, um, which is obviously explains why sometimes in Paleolithic finds you um, find bones which have been broken and, and there's been an attempt to get at the marrow, which is obviously the good bit in the bones. But the marrow is intact in these bones, so it doesn't look as though anyone's been scraping food substances out of there. And nor is there evidence that these are outsiders, that they're the kind of strange people from elsewhere who have been treated in this way by the villagers. The strontium isotope evidence from their teeth suggests they all grew up in this village. But somehow, for some reason, this is why this is 
the treatment that their bodies seem to merit after death. And in these two recent um, articles, and indeed the archaeological Journal of Archaeological Studies that gives the details about this, they think that this has got to do with a belief about the walking dead. Well, finally, um, at least in, in the range of British material I want to talk about, here is possibly Ursula Kemp, midwife and herbalist. And she and her companion, Elizabeth Bennett, not obviously the one from Pride and Prejudice, a whole different one, um, were tried and executed in 1582 for witchcraft. And it seemed that um, there had been some kind of argument between Ursula and uh, a mother who was in labour about whether she would come and attend to the birth or not. And then the baby died shortly afterwards, and so Ursula was accused of having put the evil eye on it. And in 1921, when there was some excavation going on for the rebuilding of a house in St. Osseth in Essex, this skeleton was found. And I don't know how well you can see in this, this picture, um, but it was assumed, because this was not in a graveyard, but it was in the private garden, that this was the witch of St. Osseth lying in unhallowed ground. And this local postcard was produced in 1921, and, and um, Alison Rowlands of the University of Essex kindly gave me a, a scan of it. And there was a great deal of discussion about what should be done with the skeleton, a certain amount of local tourism. And then the skeleton, then the house burnt down. Well, that was disturbing. And the skeleton was then sold to the Museum of Witchcraft in Boscastle, and it remained there for many years. But there's a documentary maker in St. Osseth called John Warland, who's been very interested in this story. And he negotiated, once the Museum of Witchcraft had closed down, he negotiated the return of this particular skeleton to St. Osseth, so Ursula could be reburied. And... One of the um, beliefs about the, the find in 1921, and again, perhaps you can just about see on the, the postcards, that iron rivets were thought to have been found by the knees of the, the skeleton. Why would you drive iron rivets into the knees of a suspected witch? Obviously, to stop her walking again. Well, which is all well and good, um, but John Warland, being of a, an inquiring turn of mind, had the bones analysed and had the rivets looked at and looked indeed again at the, the sketches from the excavation. And various disappointing things emerged. First of all, this is not a female skeleton. Secondly, the iron rivets through the knees probably weren't iron rivets at all, but coffin nails, and probably weren't through the knees, but in the coffin. So although this looked in, in some ways like a remarkable, remarkable example of new belief or continuing belief into the early modern period of how to stop the walking dead by use of iron, and of course iron is very important as a protection against the supernatural, doesn't look as if this is one of those after all. But um, it's, I think, just in, in kind of pulling this all together a little bit, I think it's no coincidence 
that most of the stories that we have, apart from the Drake Clone Stapen Hill one, but the ones we have from Byland Abbey, the ones that William of Newborough recorded, all come from parts of the country, apart from the Buckinghamshire ghost, that is. They all come from parts of the country which were settled by Scandinavians in the pre-conquest period, um, along the borders on, in the east of, um, of the, the country, and also in the northwest too. And there is a very strong tradition in Old Norse Icelandic literature of creatures walking again after death. Um, the most famous of these is the Swedish shepherd Glaumur, who is found in Gretis saga. And this is a obviously recent depiction of Glaumur, looking extremely unpleasant by an Icelandic artist. Um, and Glaumur was a Swede, a pagan. He refused to go to church on Christmas Day when all the rest of the, the farm went. And when they came back, he had vanished. And he, his body was found with its back broken. Very difficult to lug him down the hillside to take him to the churchyard to bury him. So they buried him where he was, and he started walking again and made the valley where the farm was uninhabitable until the hero Grettir um, was encouraged to go and wrestle with this, this troll-like monstrous creature. And so Grettir waits for Glaumur one night, and they wrestle and wrestle and wrestle, and finally Grettir got, gets on top of Glaumur and is about to cut his head off, usual technique, um, and the moon, which had clouds over it, um, suddenly the clouds disappear and Glamour looks at Grettir and the horrible light that comes from his eyes terrifies Grettir for a moment and Glamour pronounces a curse on him and says that from now on his luck will change, he's going to have nothing but bad luck. He was destined to become stronger, but this is the strongest he's ever going to be. And wherever he goes in the dark, he will always see glamorous eyes before him. And in fact, this is still a proverb in Icelandic, that to see something horrible in the dark is, is to see glam's eyes. And unfortunately for Grete, he became an outlaw, so he spent a lot of time um, out in the Icelandic countryside, hiding out in caves and islands and so on. And being that far north, a lot of the time it was dark. And so he could never bear to be alone. He would always have to have somebody with him. And this often led to having to take in completely untrustworthy assassins who wanted to kill him just because he needed the company to keep away those terrifying eyes. And so the story of Glamour then has quite a lot in common with the kinds of stories that we seem to find in the north of England as regards these, these walking ghosts. Uh, but I just want to wrap up by talking about what happens when Christianity gets to Iceland. And here we have a remarkable story, and I feel justified in including this because Thorgunna actually comes from the Outer Hebrides, and she comes on a boat to Iceland and starts living with a family in the west of Iceland and helping them out on the farm. And one day, as they're reaping the, the grass, a rain of blood falls from the sky on her, not on anybody else. And Thorgunna says, uh-oh, I don't think this is good. 
um, as you would, and she goes and takes to her bed and dies very soon afterwards. But she says to the lady of the household, I know that you have been looking at my very beautifully woven bed hangings and my coverlets with covetous eyes. Now, when I'm dead, you seriously need to burn them. And the lady of the household says, yes, of course, what else would I do? And of course, as you can guess, she does not. And before we know where we are, we have major hauntings going on in this farmhouse. We have pestilence, people start getting sick. We have some members of the farm community, including the, the uh, housewife's husband, drown on the field in a boat. But once they're drowned, do they stay drowned? No, they come back in, in their wet clothes and sit in front of the fire dripping. And this causes a, a kind of gloom to fall on the household. And eventually, they figure out they better burn the bed hangings, which they do. And the pestilence stops. But still, these wretched apparitions keep coming back every evening. And in the end, the young son of the household um, holds a legal, um, prosecutes them, in essence, and holds a little court a hearing and orders them all to leave. And they all kind of trudge miserably out again, but they're never seen. Meanwhile, though, Thorgunna's corpse um, needs to be taken somewhere for Christian burial. And so the people from the household decide to take her to the, the cathedral in Skullholt, which is a couple of days' walk from, from where they are in, um, in the west of Iceland. And so on the way, carrying the coffin, they come to a farmhouse, and they ask the farmer if they can have some shelter. And the farmer says... Well, yes, I suppose so, but unfortunately we don't have any food here, really, so you can't have any dinner. And they're a bit upset by this because it's not very hospitable to refuse to feed your guests. And during the night, as they're all lying there hungry, um, they hear a clattering in the pantry, and they get up and have a look, and there is Thorgunna, stark naked, getting bowls and uh, plates down from the shelves in the pantry and filling them with the farmer's food, because, of course, he did have a food supply all along. He didn't want to share it, was all. And so she serves them all supper, and they eat it very happily. And um, the farmer is shamed, and he never does that again. Then she climbs back in her coffin, and they carry her off to Skullholt, and there she's buried. So we can see there how a very different kind of, of walking dead story can emerge in um, contrast to the dangerous and horrible creatures that we find among the walking dead who have died in a state of sin. Um, Thorgunna had a good Christian death, even though I think there was no priest available to come to her bedside at that time. Um, but she taught other people how you're supposed to live. And so I guess in conclusion, one of the interesting things that we might think about and kind of take away from this is that in the medieval period, it was easy to know how to deal with the walking dead. Cut off the head, take out the heart, burn it, and say prayers for it, and then it will find its way out of purgatory sooner or later and be able to go to heavenly bliss. Can we do that anymore? I don't think so. Thank you.